Hello and welcome to the Ambassador Labs podcast, where we explore all things about cloud-native platforms, developer control planes, and developer experience. I'm your host, Daniel Bryant, head of DevRelly at Ambassador Labs, and today I had the pleasure of sitting down with Apostolos Apostolidis, or Tolly, to his friends, a principal practice engineer at UK-based car purchasing platform Cinch. Join us for a fantastic wide-ranging discussion covering topics such as how to improve the craft of software engineering, creating communities of practice, and how to reduce developers' cognitive load when dealing with Kubernetes and serverless. And remember, if you want to dive deeper into the motivation for and the benefits of platform engineering and cloud-native developer control planes, or are new to Kubernetes and want to learn how to get started, you can do so in our free Kubernetes Learning Center. Please visit getambassador.io to learn more. Right, welcome, Tolly. Many thanks for joining us today. Could you briefly introduce yourself and give us a little bit about your background as well, please? Well, thanks for having me. My name is Tolly. I'm a Principal practice engineer at Cinch is a kind of secondhand car seller in the UK. My role it sounds a bit weird. It's it's almost like a practice lead. I specialize in DevOps and observability, um, SRE, anything around in and around software engineering. I found myself in this role about two and a half years ago when Cinch started as an idea. I was one of the, I was the first software engineer to be hired. And I kind of went through the journey with Cinch as Cinch grew. I grew as well in my in very and kind of went through a few roles. But the thread between it has always been um, DevOps and observability. My background before that is I studied maths, mathematical physics, did masters, and then I found myself I literally found myself doing software development um, because we were looking for, for mathematicians, and I found it really really hard very hard, a lot of terminology. It was about the time when software was very much a, you know, uh, a 13 year old who's learned to code and kind of is really, really an expert because they've done it for, for a long time. And mm-hmm. it's not the socio-technical, it doesn't have the socio-technical aspect that we talk about today. This was really hard, but then it took me a few years to become, to, tell, to even call myself a dev. And I went through, I stayed for the same company for about seven years, working on so optimizing algorithms, which was a good kind of way into software. And then moved on to uh, one more company and now I'm at Cinch. But if in terms of tech stack, I've more very much uh, .NET, it's in Sharp. I've worked uh, kind of Microsoft products my whole life, but I've touched all stacks now, infrastructure, back end, front end, but I would probably say back end is my most. Um, nowadays, I'm very, very interested in software engineering as a culture, as a mindset and how to help teams. I'd almost kind of say s- software engineering coaching would be something Ooh, that I, I currently do. Yeah. And yeah, I guess it goes, I was a basketball coach as well. So there's, there's <laughs> nice. some synergy there. So there's there's definitely things that you can lend from that are, are shared between the two disciplines. Oh yeah, I definitely like relate to coaching. Particularly as I've moved into more management roles, coaching is a super valuable tool, right? But I think even when I was a consultant, coaching at a technical level is valuable because often, you know, I used to joke I was a software psychologist because often I go in as a consultant and people would know their problems. I just need to ask the right questions, right? Yeah. And add it would come. <laughs> I yeah. love it, Tony. I love it. I mean, we could definitely double click on that and go into that a bit more as well. But you and I initially connected based on a tweet I sent out about internal DevRel, right? And it generated right. a bit of buzz and people were like, oh yeah, I'm kind of doing this. I'm not sure if I'm liking the terminology internal DevRel, but you know, you and I have talked off mic around sort of what was the, the communities of practice, things like that. And then you mentioned about coaching. I'd love to get your thoughts on, you know, when you replied to my tweet, what did you think? We was like, this is interesting. Haven't really seen this been talked about. Or I was kind of curious what you're, what you're thinking I, around that. 
yeah, I thought you were in my head. I was like, how did, <laughs> how did how did this guy get in my head? It's something I've been thinking about a lot and we've been talking about a lot in time, how we go about sharing practice and sharing knowledge between between teams. One of the biggest problems that you have, so so we we have a very much a cross-functional uh, team-oriented topology, if you like. So from the team topology speak, where we've got a bunch of streamlined teams and a very minimal number of platform teams. And the problem with that is that you kind of you kind of over index on uh, on on stream and <laughs> kind of the teams focusing on their domain and disciplines between them not talking to each other. And what happens there is that you you lose the the sharing knowledge. You you lose the the okay. So how do how do we improve our craft? So that's where my role kind of came in and we have we have got colleagues who focus on other aspects back end front end we've got a head of engineering practice uh, and the reason for that is because we want we want people to share things we want people to learn together and we've had learning there from the start but they don't they haven't built the relationships with each other as and as we're scaling and we're getting more people in we started about two years ago two and a half years ago with 10 15 people in manchester now we're over 250 people oh, wow. as a company so all of this does contribute to quite a bit of siloing. So I was very interested in your tweet because I thought, how do you organizationally enable learning and technical enablement and, tech and, and just advancing our understanding of, of the, the craft itself? Yeah, fantastic. And before perhaps we dive into some of the, the socio aspect of the socio-technical, Tolly, just to give folks a, a bit of background, because I think this is fascinating background. You and I were chatting off mic about at Cinch, you don't actually use Kubernetes, because you know I live and breathe Kubernetes at the moment, right? But I do, I'm fully aware that other things do exist. And I'm serverless. You know, I've done a bunch of stuff with Knative, obviously with Amazon Lambda back in the day. I'd love to get your take on on sort of why, you know, your organization chose serverless. And you even hinted at maybe chose it over Kubernetes, which I thought was super interesting. Yeah, it was my first question, right, when you asked me about the <laughs> podcast. Are you okay if I don't talk about Kubernetes? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so it's interesting, right? Because we, when I started, I was I was hired as a SM, DevOps SME, whatever whatever that means. But the platform that the, the initial version of the website was built on was AKS, so Kubernetes in Azure. Oh, yeah. And my background was, I was kind of hired in the role because the recruiter heard that I used Azure DevOps and the company was looking for a DevOps SME, so... Linking the two Check. together completely <laughs> yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Let's, let's, so kind of, but as um, as it happened in my in my role in my previous role, I got very interested into the DevOps movement and DevOps culture because we had a lot of DevOps anti patterns. We had CAB meetings, ah. we had ops and dev, we had things going on um, very very slow like cadence of releases, um, all sorts of things, all the things that you would expect. So I got very interested in it. And when I joined Cinch, we already had uh, a, a website that was built by an agency and the back end was all kind of hosted in Kubernetes cluster. So, so naturally, me and a couple of other engineers, we kind of got into the habit of, you know, we, we started learning Kubernetes and, mm -hmm. and all the Helm charts and all the, all the concepts and terminology and tooling around that. And we're, we're starting to realize we, we have to build a team around this. We have to, mm. like, one of the first things we need to do is build a team around this and make this stable and then build out teams to to, to develop software for the, the the website that we wanted. And we decide, and I, it didn't help that one day when we upgraded Kubernetes, we put the website down and, and we had to handle that. You know, everyone was, was really nice about it. And 
we we I remember the the technology director called me to ask me if I wanted in breakfast. Oh, that, uh, was, that's was, leadership, right? <laughs> yeah, it was really really nice. But then that's that was the nail in the coffin for Gwinnett. We were like, we don't understand it enough. Mm. We need to hire in people. So we made the brave decision to move to serverless. Yeah, and the natural evolution from there would would be Azure Functions. Yep, but. We didn't, we didn't think Azure Functions were mature enough at the time. And although we were .NET heavy and we'd hired a few .NET people in, we decided to go for AWS. Oh, interesting. Lambda. Yeah. Mm. Yes, we went for Lambda and anything that has, that didn't mean that we had to deal with hosting. Nice. So really it's the, and you know, you and I have talked off mic about fantastic work the Team Topologies team uh, crew have done. And I look back at my dev career and, cognitive load didn't call it that back then but cognitive load was a key concept when i look back right when i was most confused my cognitive load was was high was that is that sort of a fair roll up there Tolly? do you think the the, con- yeah. the cognitive load was super high for kubernetes yeah that's that's fantastic yeah so i i termed it as the cognitive load shift from from infrastructure to to observability and monitoring so what what it enabled us, what serverless enabled us is that we didn't have to care even about containers, like we don't have any mm. containers. We the only thing we needed to care about is a little bit of infrastructure configuration, our uh, GitHub actions uh, that we had that we we also kind of moved to from Azure DevOps, interestingly. And <laughs> yeah. and then uh, we adopted, we kind of went strong on observability and we thought, well. What, what can we gain? So we have a certain cognitive load. We, we gained a bit of cognitive load from not having to deal with con- containers and clusters. And yeah, yeah. We, we, we kind of redirected that cognitive, that, that load towards observability and monitoring. Oh, nice. And that helped us become closer to the customer ultimately. So one half year later, rather than me becoming an expert in Kubernetes and, and containers, I, I started knowing a lot more about observability and monitoring mm-hmm. and our platform that we use, which was data, which which helped helped massively because we became close to the customer. We started talking about business metrics or so metrics that, that helped us understand how customers are using the website rather than metrics related to Kubernetes clusters. And, <laughs> yeah. And nothing Interesting. against Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> but it, yeah, that was the reality of what we experienced. I like it because I often um, talk about KPIs, business KPIs, and then things like SLIs, service level indicators, right? And I do think they're almost two concepts, like full stack engineers in theory, full cycle developers would have to know both things. But I do wonder at a certain scale of organization or certain scale of platform or applications, the cognitive cognitive load is just too high. You have to choose, right? And it sounds like you made that choice, Tolly, because the customer is what you're most focusing on, right? As a business, that's where you're you know, adding your value and getting your revenue, right? So you made that conscious choice to focus on business KPIs over platform SLIs. Yes, yeah, yeah. We still, we still, we still try to use the concept of SLOs, although mm-hmm. although we're finding it quite hard. But we, it's all about from the, from day one, we started emitting metrics and telemetry data that's related to business. So you'll have things like mm-hmm. vehicle sold or nice. uh, finance application approved, things like that, that relate to our business domain rather than our infrastructure platform. Mm. Very nice. Very nice indeed. And was that a easy shift for the rest of the team? Because I'm, t- I'm think- thinking you you seem like, again, we've only been chatting for like 30 minutes or whatever, but you do seem quite em- empathic. You seem to be thinking a bigger context all the time. And I'm conscious that, you know, early in my career, I didn't do that, I'll be honest, right? And definitely developers I've worked with in the past are just focused on what's my CPU, what's my heap size, what's my memory load? How do you reconcile your goals with the rest of the team? 
Yeah, it was really hard. So uh, the the first reaction from developers is, where are my logs? <laughs> yeah. and I want my logs. Give me my logs. And then you have to you have to try. You have to show them show them the the, the new concepts, and you have to show them mm-hmm. working for them to understand it. It's it's that co- extra cognitive load that they need, which they yeah. gained from not having infrastructure considerations. But it, it took time, and we had to really. It, it took time, so we had to really try and. Um, take them along a journey and encourage usage of the tooling. So the, the biggest, the, the biggest, the biggest problem to start with is what what platform do we use? We started with Honeycomb, which was really good. It has all the observability principles right, but then we moved into Datadog because it encompassed a lot more of what we might need, including front end and SLOs at the time. Because so. I guess the challenge was how do we take engineers along the way? And mm. going back to our initial Twitter conversation, we've, we we deliberately uh, designed the organization so that each team had a dedicated, if you like, ops person, but they weren't really ops people. They were uh, software engineers who wrote code, who did, who were extra, had an extra focus on infrastructure, mm. CICD, and observability and monitoring, and a little bit of SRE. So there's a lot there, a lot of software lifecycle, but we hired them explicitly to say, we'd like you to think about these things and we'd like you to pair with people in your team and we'd like you to bring things in from what you've learned from outside the team to help your team build software faster and better. So that worked for a while. I was one of them. I, I, I worked in a team like that for a while, so I kind of know how it feels. And it's a lot of it was actually the dev, not, not the DevRel that much, but the, an, an enabler. So you're, yeah, totally. like we had many coaches of like, oh. okay, so here we use, here's how we use observability, here's how we use monitoring. And that worked for a while, but as you scale, it becomes a lot harder to actually hire one per team as well. Yeah. It's a really hard role to hire for as well. I can imagine. Yeah. yeah. So I guess, how do you, Following on from that, so how do you scale it? Is it a case of, you know, I was chatting to Crystal Hershon, again, we were chatting off mic, and I was chatting to Crystal earlier in the week, and she was at Sneak moving a similar kind of approach, but moving more towards self-service education. So bootstrapping teams with, with people. But when that didn't scale, adding a bit of, say, video tutorials or adding some mm-hmm. articles to read as part of the onboarding process, right? Is that something you've done as well? More or less. So we're running a book club right now on the oh, DevOps handbook internally. So one of the questions, uh, so sorry, one of the things mentioned in chapter, in part two, where which is all about where do you start with DevOps, the three models that you can use for, for, for this kind of thing. So you either embed people into teams or you have a separate central ops team as the traditional way, or you have the kind of DevOps advisories or the, the kind of ops advisories, whatever you want to call them. Yeah. Um, and I think the, we, we went with the first model initially. We're kind of growing towards the, the latter model, which is around you have about, you have maybe one SME, if you like, uh, mm-hmm. for two or three teams that people can advise. And it, that's naturally happening already. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, we were, we were thinking about how to become better knowledge stewards and mm. we've been reading a lot about community practice and we've been le- uh, reading a lot about how you can better uh, improve your knowledge stewardship through community practice because we believe well the, the community practice mantra believes that the people who do the work know the work better mm. the best yep makes sense so we we kind of i think we we agree with that and we we want to we want to help 
people build communities and help uh, people participate in communities so that we can share our knowledge so they can learn together so that people can build relationships with each other and nice. um, across teams because cross-functional teams create or cross-discipline teams create silos yeah and yeah, yeah. we've over-indexed on cross-discipline teams so now we need to kind of bring bring the disciplines together or bring the people who have common interests together mm. and we're hoping that out of that uh, we will have better knowledge stewardship we will have better learning and we're already seeing that quite a bit we're seeing people picking up things like github discussions that's a new feature in github yeah, which yeah. is like stack overflow you can use it like stack overflow or just to kind of have an idea and just get better at async communication. That's mm, that's something that skill, we're right? working on a lot. But the onboarding thing that you mentioned, so that I don't kind of I forget to mention that, it's it's hard. So I think we're we're we've as we grew as we've grown, we found the need for engineering managers as well, and they're gonna they're helping quite a bit with. We built out an engineering progression framework where that describes a bit, you know, what what the, the various roles we have are and what skills are required, and. Making things visible quite a bit, I think, is the biggest thing. So we're on the journey. If I had to summarize, it would be communities. It would be engineering managers and just better tooling, I would say, around async async collaboration. Super interesting. Definitely something I'd be keen to dive into a bit more there, Tolly. It's based on our, our Twitter conversation. For me, the, the sort of mention of the communities of practice is very close to that internal DevRel thing, right? Because for me, DevRel is a lot about communication, but you've got to get that feedback loop too. And it's much like continuous delivery, right? Everyone's like, ship the thing. And I'm like, yeah, shipping's great. Got to get feedback so we get better. And I think it's the same with communities of practice, right? It's that communication of things and it's that feedback. So could you share with the listeners, how does that work in that framework because i'm guessing for a lot of folks this thing communities of practice is probably somewhat of a new concept yeah so to start with none of these concepts are are, are mine i've read emily weber's book on communities of practice and the book that she recommends as well in the book which is a book called cultivating community to practice i think and it's it was written 20 years ago oh wow i've not read that one that's on my list yeah that's great It's, it's a bit of a big book, but it's it's a very interesting one because it doesn't feel like it was written 20 years ago. A lot of the concepts are are very much, you can relate to them still. So mm. one of the big things about communities, you might have a community around, for example, security. So people want to learn more about security. We have a couple of, we have a few roles that are quite obscure called security engineers. A security engineer might start a community and whoever wants, and what that means is you start a a group of people and that meets every so often and they have a little a little bit of an agenda and they go through the normal uh, cadence of kind of forming norming gotcha. all that stuff Teamwork, that we talk yeah. about yeah to, to get into a, a mature community and mm. the things that you need to do around that is first you need to kind of get the interest then you get people in and you you meet regularly I think that's the biggest thing mm. so and that's where you start you know, modeling that over-indexing that I was talking about earlier around cross-functional teams, mm. where, whereby before you were siloed and you just met with your team, yeah. now once, once a week maybe you're meeting for an hour with people who have a similar interest across the organization that they talk about things and you have an agenda. And, isn't that, and, and it kind of as you mature, it becomes 
less about talking about things, but more about maybe having a project that you do. And an example, an example could be that we, our, these enablers that we have, we have a community of practice around that. The, they, they have a, a project around, okay, so how can we improve our CICD across the organization? We have a backend template that we use, for example. How can we look at the backend template and recommend some tangible changes that will improve the CICD mechanism that is almost recommended by the, the core backend template, if you like? Or they will do things like, well, how can we, how can we not um, improve the knowledge around this? How can we not answer the same question all the time? And this yeah. is where the, the GitHub Action, the, the GitHub discussion things came, comes in and okay well we can we can have a good compliance base we can we can curate our the, the GitHub discussions and mark things as answers and you know like better better curate knowledge um, I don't know if that makes it a bit more clear it's not that clear for us right now we're on the journey um, well that's that's great though isn't it? no it's definitely making it clearer in my mind Dolly and I think I always like to dive into these things even if they're kind of emerging or nascent mm. right because i think other folks as we've seen on like you know, twitter conversations right other folks going me too right and some folks have literally got no idea and i've been there right no idea where to start sometimes and even if it's not where you ultimately end up the beginning of the journey can be really critical sometimes right and i do think to your yeah. point particularly in this kind of covid post-covid or maybe not even post-covid but covid era the natural human interaction has been removed to some degree, right? And I think you have to work extra hard across time zones, locations, these kind of things, right? Async is not natural for a lot of folks. And how you foster collaboration under that condition is even more challenging. So having some of the frameworks you're talking about, I think a really good kind of like bootstrapping mechanism. Would you agree? Yeah, I can totally relate to that. Uh, async has been, so we, the scale that I was talking about earlier at Cinch, we, we did it all remotely because we went, we started building out teams in January 2019, 2019? Mm. 2020, 2020? 2020, uh, when COVID all kicked off, right, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that was it. Yeah. 2020, and then uh, March 2020, we all went into lockdown. That's so we, we had, we had yeah. about four, four teams at the time, and now we have 20-odd. So uh, oh, we wow. scaled all, all remotely. And I have to say, the, the communities, the, one of the communities that I, I lead, that, that for a while was really hard to do remotely, especially for people who don't know each other. Yeah, yeah. Mom, the moment we met in the office, magic started happening. <laughs> I know. It's crazy. Yeah. I, I don't, know, yeah. don't know what it is about it. But <laughs> I'm with you. It was incredible. I think the big thing for me as well is that with communities, I, I'm finding that there's particular skill set that's interesting and useful is facilitation so, like to coaching so, a little bit as well like we we're talking earlier right that's a great topic yeah yeah so there's, there's a whole community out there of facilitators who are you know you go into a room they facilitate something and you're like how do they do that magic mm. and it's learning that magic that, that i've found the most fascinating in my journey so far and it it's crazy how much it enables to make things inclusive, to make sure things are, you know, to help moving things along, to encourage people to, to participate, all these things, and kind of what, what kind of techniques you can use at different stages of the community is, is massive. One of the other things that um, I did, we did quite recently, is that we started having an, an internal blogging platform. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so we, I, I don't know, I'm hoping a lot of people out there have got similar experiences, but we had, for async communication, we had Confluence yeah, and Microsoft Teams. Yeah. And a lot of people, 
when you ask them, why don't you write this up or why don't you write a blog post? That sounds very interesting. Like, go for it. They're like, where shall I write it? I don't know. Like, mm. Where, where, where is the biggest problem? So we we, we launched a, an internal blogging platform by launched. I mean, we paid for a blogging platform and asked, asked people to, to, to join mm. and they joined and people started writing blog posts for work, for outside of work. A lot of is this public, Dolly, or like just internal? It's not public right now. I think I think that's actually a big learning between um, mm. that's a big learning for communities and general, and it relates to blogging as well. Is that there's, there's a tension between psychological safety and working in the open. So what I found with communities is that you you have to start small and let and let people bond with each other and 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 meet with and kind of get to know each other. Yeah. Even with a community of maybe eight to nine, eight to ten people, it's only when they when they break down into activities of two, for example, mm-hmm. that they get to ask the question. So okay, so where are you from? What do you do? You know all this stuff, and they get to know each other. Same with with blogging. We we do want to blog externally, but we didn't have a blogging culture internally so mm-hmm. it didn't really translate so we thought the first step is we start an internal blogging platform and get That's that blogging sense. culture and then naturally we're hoping that we'll, we'll blog externally as well absolutely fantastic i know we're kind of uh, time it but i'd like to wrap up the podcast because so many fantastic things discussed today i've got a bunch of notes and i always like a book recommendation you've given me a couple of those which is like mission accomplished right but if you were to chat to someone that is in a similar position as you were a couple of years ago, knowing all the mistakes you've made, successes you've had, right? I love to share this kind of stuff. What advice would you give them starting on the journey of how to build a platform, how to share the knowledge and how to ultimately meet the customer's needs, right? Very good question. (laughs) Very good question. I would say, I think, my biggest learning is that if you believe in the platform, if you believe in your approach, don't despair because <laughs> I've had a lot of those moments. It does yeah, yeah. work in the end. Uh, I had a lot, a lot of those moments to give specific examples around observability. It was a really, really hard concept to, to introduce to engineers that were not mm. used to it. It's not something that engineers put on their CVs. You won't see them <laughs> interesting. Interesting. data or in their CVs, but I'm hoping that they will now because it's a capability that's quite crucial in in 2022. So I would say uh, persevere. I yeah. was lucky to have I was lucky to have line managers and people who really influenced me to support me in that process. And when I went on a call and I said it's not working, there no one's getting it. I don't think it's the right approach. They they encouraged me to be the right that it is the right approach. So I'd say that perseverance is one. The second thing actually is don't go against your tooling. Right. Really do understand your tooling. Mm-hmm. If if you're going to use Kubernetes, for example, understand what that provides. Don't try and kind of retrofit something if you're using serverless. Likewise, if you're using a big example for me was Datadog versus uh, Honeycomb. I would use, I'd, I would advocate for completely different practices if I was using Honeycomb compared to what um, using Datadog and that's a good example because I I was very much influenced by charity majors and yeah, all the stuff that work. she says <laughs> some of those things just don't work in Datadog and th- things in you you would probably best off having di- slightly different practices maybe some of the principles are the same but don't go against your tooling use your tooling to your advantage yeah that the tooling thing I don't know if I'm bumping into that a lot at the moment is like one thing as I say in the cloud native space is we're still at the divergent phase there's just more tools coming and i love kubecon right i'm looking forward to going to valencia in a few few weeks months month time 
but I know there's going to be even more tools there, right? And you know, I'm I'm guilty as charged. So I work for a vendor. We create tools, right? But yeah. like we are. But at Ambassador Labs, we're really trying to say, hey, let's converge. Like we talk a lot about developer control planes as a way to centralize some of these you know, things to code ship and run. But I I just like I, I, do you see us slowing down on the tooling that's going out there? I don't know. I, I think <laughs> I think there's this tooling. I guess in, in many cases you find that the the two in the, in our case, for example, again take Honeycomb versus Datadog. Honeycomb was a great tool and it's like really really pushes you towards the right principles and the principles I think that do work. But it's all about what you're trying to achieve. It's you know the answer is always it depends and yes. and actually <laughs> and actually and actually gives you options, right? Like yeah yeah. I don't I don't I don't see the existence of the two you know Honeycomb and Datadog being contradictory. I think the different organizations will want a different thing. I guess mm. it, having options is a good. One actually third advice that I just thought about is that <laughs> be careful about the the tooling that you you choose. Uh, it's mm-hmm. not that we weren't careful. It's just that um, you will not easily uh, migrate away from it. I mean, we migrated from Azure to AWS and we migrated from Azure DevOps to GitHub Actions, but it's not every day that we're going to do that, especially yeah. as we scale. So I'd say that be be quite know what you want from a tool before you go into a tool. That's great advice, Ollie. And it's, uh, I, I'll double down that as well like my time as a individual contributor and as a consultant too many times we did not think about the requirements the constraints and the skill sets of my team or our team because you know this hot new thing looks great but when you start plugging it in you realize like there's a mismatch or whatever so i'll double down on that that comment there fantastic we'll wrap up now tolly thank you so much really appreciate your time it's been fantastic hopefully you know we'll, we'll meet in person and we'll continue the conversation like uh, in the future right and maybe even podcast again but in the meantime if folks want to Get involved with the conversation. Want to reach out to you? Where's best? Uh, Twitter, LinkedIn, LinkedIn, Twitter. Uh, so uh, Twitter, I'm an, uh, Apostolis09 uh, at Apostolis09. Um, LinkedIn, Apostolis Apostolidis. You'll find me there, or uh, my email address if you want. Dev at Tolly.io, which is a lot simpler. But yeah, thanks for having me. This is this has been a really really good conversation. You mentioned conferences. I went to a conference last week, and it's just such a good feeling to go in person again. So I yeah hope I meet you at a conference at some point. Um, hope you enjoy your your Q, is it QCon you're going to? Yeah, QCon next week and then KubeCon EU not not too far away. And we've even got KubeCon NA in North America. I think it's in Detroit this year in October time. I, I know you're probably not in the Kubernetes space, but as in yeah, I do hope we get to meet at a conference. It'd be awesome, right? Yeah, brilliant. Thanks, Dolly. Thanks very much.